Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we critically analyze some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. And this is the third episode of our special mini-season on The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, a Hunger Games novel, as it says in my Kindle version. No, (laughs) that is not the official title. Kindle, what are you doing? I don't know. (laughs) Take it up with Amazon. Of all the things to take up with Amazon, that is the one. This is the one, yes. Yeah. Well, this episode, we're going to be talking about the last four chapters in part one of the novel, chapters seven, eight, nine, and 10. And I believe you are going to start us off with a recap. Yes. So it starts out with Arachne bleeding out and the District 10 girl getting shot. And at Lucy's urging, Snow decides to go over to try to help. And because of that, becomes, you know, quote, the hero of the capital. Then, despite this death, he still figures that Dr. Gall may still expect the proposal. So he writes it up, and then she has both him and Clemencia reach their hand in to get the documents out of this tank full of mutt snakes, because, of course, and Clemencia gets bit. And that really distresses Snow, and mentors and tributes then end up going to the arena and bombs go off killing and injuring many and then they have an even worse funeral (laughs) so that's a summary yeah so a lot happened in these chapters a whole lot happened and i cut (laughs) out a lot Yeah, so we're, we're really, really booking it into the plot at this point. Yes, and indeed. And that means that there's there's lots and lots for us to chew on and to talk about. Definitely. Well, should we start out with a quote? Great idea. So this quote comes from actually the last couple paragraphs of the last chapter in part one. Snow is talking to Lucy Gray, thanking her for saving his life, and this is what he's thinking. In those few words, he sensed a shift in their dynamic. As her mentor, he'd been the gracious giver of gifts, always to be met with gratitude. Now she'd upended things by giving him a gift beyond compare. On the surface, everything looked the same. Chained girl, boy offering food, peacekeepers guarding that status quo. But deep down, things could never be the same between them. He would always be in her debt. She had the right to demand things. Yeah, so this quote is, I think, a really, really interesting one and a really great one. I do love this idea of now for Snow, she has the right to demand things. Now he feels like he's in her debt when he has seen her increasingly as human, as we talked about last week, but she still didn't have the right to demand things like food or protection or these other types of things that you'd like to think any person would have the right to demand. And now for him, at least, because he feels like he's in her debt, he ultimately has more incentive to give her the things that she's demanding even if it's just you know respect yeah yeah i mean that's the thing about him right he felt like he had all of the power and all of the control which i mean he still does societally but emotionally now he feels indebted and that affects him in a way that i don't know if it's he feels like he has to do more for her now because if he didn't he couldn't live with himself. I'm not I'm not sure exactly where mm. it's all stemming from, but at least in this moment, he doesn't feel as much like he can play with her life in a way that he probably would have felt 
more comfortable doing before. Yeah, absolutely. And I love your point about the the societal power shifting here as well, because, you know, the line about how he would always be met with gratitude for giving her gifts in the past. And now the gratitude that he got for being, you know, you can't even say decent because he's still participating in this awful, awful thing that she's being forced into, but more decent by giving her food and things like that. And she'd feel gratitude. Now we see more of the stark absurdity of what the status quo was. And I just think that that's so, so cool to, to see him processing. Yeah, for sure. And for her to like, know it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is a great, a great quote to start off with, but we should probably get into the rest of our episode. So our first segment will be our first impressions. This one will be pretty brief. Yeah, because now that we came to the end of part one, The Mentor, we're going to have a different final section of this episode moving us into part two. So yeah, just initial first impressions was just this is very different than I expected it to go because I definitely thought that there wouldn't already be eight tributes dead or missing (laughs) before the games even start. Seriously, that's so unthinkable in the original trilogy it really is it's just so different and i mean you you see that they're very policed Mm -hmm. but it's in a very different way than 64 years later but it's so interesting to see there actually be an opportunity like this for any of them to potentially get away i mean obviously Two of them were gunned down trying to run away. One died from trying to jump over a wall to get away. And Marcus has mysteriously disappeared. But yeah, until Katniss blew the force field in the second games, it just seemed like there would be no possible way that any tribute could get out of this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was just a very different dynamic. We'll, We'll see what happens in part two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've really been surprised by the setting of the Capitol. These last few chapters in particular really kind of set home how militarized it is as a city, how it's not a city that seems to have moved on from the war. It's still so ingrained in the city and in the culture and economy and everything about the city. Also in this book, when after Arachne gets gets stabbed, he calls for medics. He calls for Dr. Second, but the medics is the term that's used. And at least in the United States, that that's a word that is a military practitioner of medicine. And then in the funerals, talking about how these are more lives lost to rebellion and evil, even though they died kind of as basically further casualties of the Hunger Games. Like, it's just, I think the society still sees itself at war in such interesting ways. And I, I wasn't expecting that coming into the book. And I'm really excited to see more of that as we go. Well, and such an interesting concept is if there are other people that are still in the capital that are participating in rebellion. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we move on now to our, our touch points where we see how what we're reading relates to things that we've experienced in our world. Something that was just interesting to me was at Arachne's funeral. When the president says, two days ago, Rachne Crane's young and precious life was ended, and so we mourn another victim of the criminal rebellion that besieges us. And it just reminded me 
when one of our roommates had gotten injured by somebody pushing him off a train platform and he broke his arm and luckily was able to get up back on the platform before the train came. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a horrifying thing to happen for sure. But I remember talking with him about it and it coming out that the guy had asked our roommate for some money so that he could buy some food. And my roommate didn't hear him because he had his headphones and I was listening to like a comedy podcast. And so he was just like laughing. And I remember that my roommate said, what he thought I did to him, I think is worse than what he did to me. Mm. That just really struck me. And I think it, and I was like, yeah, I like you as a person. Like you are, <laughs> you choose to be a more loving person than most people out there because it would be so easy to twist that story and mm -hmm. be like, oh, this young and innocent and noble white man was pushed off the train platform to be killed by this you know that you could paint things very much like how the capital does in this situation mm -hmm. but the crux of the matter was i mean and i'm not going to say that what that person did was right nor what the girl from district 10 did was right because i'm a pacifist but things are not all equal the structures have built in oppression and then somebody who has so much power and so much privilege just laughing at them mm. that resonated with something that i had seen demonstrated but in the more loving way and then seen here demonstrated in the destructive way yeah, yeah that that was just really interesting to me but what about you what are your touch points one quick one was just how they mentioned how after Arachne's death at the academy, a school counselor came out and started, you know, saying that if anyone needed grief counseling, she was there. And it made me think about our education system and the immense lack of mental health resources on our campuses, where often there will be, if you're lucky, a handful of counselors for thousands of students and how it's just so lacking, but how at a more elite institution, there's going to be many more of those resources available for people. And so seeing snow at the most prestigious high school, essentially academy in the capital, that this is a priority for them. And so, uh, yeah, that was just another kind of example that came from a really interesting place of, you know, the privilege that snow is party to. Absolutely. But another bigger kind of touch point that, that was really hard to, to get out of my mind while I was reading is really concerning what, what we're seeing as a society right now, where more and, and more people are standing up against the history and present day horrors of white supremacy and police brutality and violence by the state and by our systems and our institutions. And yeah. yeah. You know, I think that it's really interesting to see Snow and Sejanus grappling with that in this book. You know, Sejanus talks about how it's the government's responsibility to take care of everyone. You know, and he says the districts and those in the capital. I don't think Snow necessarily agrees with him, but Snow starts to distrust the state as well as he realizes that even the privileged are not safe from those who have the real power, like Dr. Gall. Wait, wait, I'm not safe? <laughs> then <laughs> there's that, a problem. Exactly. And that's that's when he starts saying that, that, that there's a problem. And again, it's still a problem to his own survival, right? He has not been activated the way Sejanus has of wanting to do more, of wanting to risk personal 
you know, whether it be harm or status or whatever else it might be in protection of other people's right to life and to safety uh, from the state. And I think it's really interesting that kind of dichotomy. And yeah, it was just something that, that I couldn't stop thinking about, you know, as we're seeing the news of protesters and police backlash and military backlash. We're really in a historic time period when you think about who is the state protecting and in what ways does it do so? And in what ways is violence itself being protected more than anything? And yeah, definitely. I just, yeah, I, I think that that seeing that through Snow and Sejanus's perspectives is extremely timely and, and fascinating. Well, that, and that goes to that quote a little bit too that Dr. Gall said, oh, if you hit us, we'll hit you back twice as hard. Mm-hmm. And so it's like... Oh, you're quote unquote breaking curfew, then we're going to hit you back. You know, like we're going to do way more than anything that we would accuse you of doing to send the message don't step out of line. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also really interesting. We talked about Snow's reaction to being called a rebel, but here Mm -hmm. Sejanus calls him a rebel again and he answers the joke. Just that, that clear change in him where. He has lost faith in the state, even for himself, and he's more comfortable being called a rebel in ways that he wouldn't have been before, um, I think is is very interesting. And especially knowing who Snow becomes, I'm really interested in seeing how revolutionary a character like that could get. But let's move into our, our, our Back to the Future segment, where we look at this book through the lens of the original Hunger Games trilogy. What were you looking at? So I have several. But I'll start with the most substantial one, which is when Sejanus kneels down by the body of the girl from District 10 Mm. and reaches through the bars and sprinkles something white over her body and like mumbles some words. And that to me just like so harkened back to Katniss honoring Rue's body. Yeah. You know, Katniss's was an act of defiance because it brought attention to the injustice of this little girl murdered in these games and doing what no, or probably very, very few tributes have ever done. Then Sejanus's is also an act of defiance, but slightly different, where his is because, like, capital citizens are supposed to think of the district kids as subhuman. Mm. And it brings the attention to the fact that he is not one of the capital yet. And he's basically there eroding some of the capital philosophy. Yeah, that was such a powerful moment. Oh, I like Sajana. <laughs> okay, what else did that to you? Well, do you want to do one? And then we can go back to me. So Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, for this one, I, I mostly saw kind of smaller shadows and, and mirrors. The idea of allies in the games is brought up. The fact that Lucy Gray wants to ally with Jessup is something that Snow is kind of surprised by. And, and he sees the utility of it, but it's not something that kind of would come to him. And so clearly that that's another thing that hasn't been established I also see it as interesting to see, I think, the different ways that they take it, because Lucy Gray talks about how it's not about allying for utility's sake necessarily, as it is about kind of being in solidarity with each other, right? Where we are going down together, essentially, that we are. Yeah, it was such a striking way to say that. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, 
we're going to try to get one of us back home. You know, it was like, we'll go down together. Yeah. Yeah. And again, just kind of more of that defiance and Snow sees it as, oh, well, maybe he'll protect her and still sees it in a way that is paying half of the food that he gives her in exchange for this. It's still a, a give and take there. Uh, it's just an interesting way of, of mirroring the alliances that we see later because Katniss, I think, even has ideas of the utility of partnering with PETA after especially they, you know, they get the opportunity to both survive or so they think. So she also has kind of that utility standpoint, but even underneath that, I think she has obviously much more humanity and, and sympathy and empathy than Snow's going to show. Definitely. What's another of yours? Yeah, something that I thought was really interesting is how when when Snow was kind of breaking down a bit and apologizes, saying like, you should hate me, like I would hate me. And Lucy Gray tells him that she doesn't hate him because it's not like he was the one who came up with the games. It wasn't his idea. And it just kind of reminded me a bit of when Katniss was realizing when Kato was was dying and, and then she finally kind of put him out of his misery there that he was also just a pawn of the capital. Mm. Then, you know, going into the next games, Hamish reminding her, like, remember who the real enemy is. Mm. And it seems like Lucy Gray already knows that. Yeah. I assume that part of that wisdom has come from her being part of the Covey and not having had anyone on her side, their side. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, he was saying like, oh, well, people will be able to send food in, but you, you wouldn't be able to get any from your district. And she's like, oh, I wouldn't expect to. And since it seemed like potentially the reaping was rigged, you know, District 12 is not on her side. The capital is not on her side. So nobody except the Covey have ever been on her side. And so maybe because of that, she has learned the wisdom of seeing where things are really coming from. And it's like, it's not coming from this 18-year-old kid. Hmm. Now for future generations, it will come from that kid who grew up. But she doesn't know that yet. That's so fascinating. I got such a different reading of that line where I just expected her to say, I would not expect them to as a, I figured they wouldn't have the money to or the resources to. But the second part of that line is that's not the point. And that for me was so powerful. This idea of her, her already understanding that she can send a message to the districts and you know what some of the, the tributes we do see in the original books are doing is sending message to the district. And that's what, you know, even like you said, Katniss Bering Rue, I think is also a, a message to the districts. And so that's that's great that we were both able to take that line in such different ways. But I think it's certainly a, a really, really powerful one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one of the things that, that came to my mind, too, was, you know, that when, especially when they're talking about the arena, how it's the same arena each time. It's basically just a blasted out coliseum. And it's so much smaller than the later games. And I wonder if people from Katniss's time, you know, the capital citizens see the older Hunger Games kind of the way that we often look at silent films. For me, at least, when I go back and rewatch silent films, there are things that just seem unnatural and, you know, almost quaint because they they haven't had the time or the experimentation to kind of get the sophistication that we've gotten over decades. And so I wonder if they see these early games as a kind of 
quaint or primitive form of entertainment that had yet to be refined the way that they, they would see later on. They have some early Hunger Games cinematography analysis class at the university yeah, or something. Exactly. And and it's classic Hunger Games. <laughs> right. Oh, <God>. <laughs> Look. <laughs> This was before the opening ceremonies had all of the vibrant costumes they have today. Mm -hmm. Look at this was before they even put makeup on the children. <laughs> that was something that reminded me too of the Hunger Games trilogy was when they were walking around the arena and it said the peacekeepers who'd been flanking them spread out as the kids dutifully followed the lead squad around the inside perimeter of the oval, forming a dusty, joyless parade. Mm. That just reminded me so much of these, yeah, opening ceremonies that were so produced with the chariots and the costumes that are supposed to represent something from their districts. And like, this was the skeletal precursor. People walk around this area so that the cameras can get shots of them. But obviously this isn't very interesting because it's dusty and joyless. And so now we need to figure out a way to make it a spectacular parade. But really it's the same thing. You're just parading kids around before they're gonna die. Oh, that's so good. That's such a great a great callback or call forward or whatever it might be. <laughs> uh, that's really, really good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I have a couple other ones. I will go quickly. Okay. So one that I thought was interesting, I was I was actually talking with my brother-in-law a little bit about earlier today, was when Dr. Garl was talking about lies. Mm-hmm. And she was like saying, like, I have no use for liars. What are lies but an attempt to conceal some type of weakness? And remembering Snow in the original trilogy talking about lies, you know, saying like, this would be so much easier if we would just agree not to lie to each other. Mm -hmm. And in the end, because he didn't really lie to her specifically, she trusted that he was telling the truth about District 13 bombing the capital children and some of their own healthcare workers and because she trusted him miss everdeen i thought we had agreed not to lie to each other and she's like yeah we did agree not to lie to each other and so then she brought down the next tyrant so mm -hmm. yeah i just it'll be interesting to see if any ideas of lies keep coming up but yeah just found that interesting yeah that that line i think is one of the most fascinating i could probably talk about it for like 15 minutes but I think that, you know, we could talk about Snow's manipulation as lies. But I think the even more interesting thing is under Snow, the capital is constantly lying to its citizens, to the districts. Oh, totally. It's using propaganda and lies. And you could argue that it's to try to conceal its weakness because he's aware, he's afraid of revolution and what that might cause. And there are actual vulnerabilities there to the, the society that he is trying to maintain. I think that that is really, really cool and really interesting. For sure. I mean, that's why he wants Katniss to lie to the districts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I also thought it was interesting. I mean, like, again, horrifying that they like sent in a veterinarian. I know. To see them. And I was just like, the Capitol just really likes to make a point. Yeah, right. Like, there's, there's no reason to do that other than you want to make a point that, yes, we want you to not all die so that there can still be some games, but we have to let you know 
that we're only healing you to kill you because you are like animals to us. Mm-hmm. And that just reminded me so much of like how much Snow loves to make a point mm. in the original trilogy. It's like, oh, after we bomb District 13, we're going to drop a bunch of roses. <laughs> like just send a message. Or I'm going to make the mutts. Uh, I'm going to engineer them so that they say Katniss's name. Like, he just really loves making a point. And I was like, maybe this is just part of the capital culture where it's just like, there's no reason to do this except that you have the power and you want to because you want to communicate to them that you can do whatever you want and rub their face in it. Yeah, so dramatic. So so dramatic. All the fanfare. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then the the very last thing on this section, and then we will move on, I promise, is just from the quote that we were talking about at the beginning with the debts mm. that now he felt indebted and, and how that's that was such a strong thing that Katniss felt. And I wonder if Snow feels it so acutely as well here because he also grew up for a big part of his formative years impoverished mm. and the idea of owing someone when you have so little to ever be able to imagine paying anyone back if that's you know kind of the common stem for both of them for this idea of of debts and owing yeah yeah or another really good mirroring well we should probably move on to our our last segment so this yeah. this is going to be uh, now that we've finished the first part of this book, the first third or so of the book, uh, let's talk about some of the character arcs that we've seen and how our perceptions of them have changed over the time. Uh, we should probably start with Coriolanus Snow. Yes, we probably should. Why don't you go first? Okay. Yeah, I think that that it's interesting to see Snow as a character who is at the intersection of privilege because he is socially very privileged. Though he is economically not privileged in some ways, he still gets the benefits of social privileges that can sometimes help with that, where he is still going to the academy for free and having all these opportunities. And certainly, you know, he's obviously working hard to be top of his class and things like that, but he's at this school because of that privilege that he has. And I think that seeing him in relation, for example, with Lucy Gray, but also with all the characters around him, it's really made me interested in the ways that he talks about other characters. You know, when Arachne dies, he talks about how she's family because she's part of the same class as he is. The same kind of right, ability. so interesting. Even though he tests her, essentially, he still has this loyalty to her in some way because of that. And, you know, so much of his entitlement and selfishness comes out in the book, even as he starts to grow. I think a really interesting part was when... Uh, after the bombing, after pages go by where he's in the hospital, he's dealing with all these problems, then it comes to a page where he says all he could think of was Lucy Gray. And for about half a paragraph, he thinks about the horrors that she is probably probably experiencing. Mm-hmm. But then in that train of thought, it leads to how much he's glad that the TV cameras did not show him clutching at her skirts when she saved him. So it goes from this kind of gratitude to embarrassment And it goes straight back to him thinking about himself. And that selfishness is so ingrained that even as he starts to humanize this person, starts to think about them in a more caring or empathetic way, he 
starts to divert back to that general selfishness that he has and fear of losing status. And I think that that's just a really interesting kind of paradigm to see him through. Yeah, it definitely is. I really appreciate how how Suzanne Collins has been writing his character because he just goes back and forth, back and forth. Oh, look at here was a kind of human moment where he wasn't being vile and then it goes right back to his privileged perspective or oh how can i manipulate this for it to benefit me in some way mm-hmm. and as much as i am frustrated and disgusted with him at many many points mm-hmm. there's also parts of like myself that i can see in him sometimes and he's like, oh, poor Clemmy, like, could she really be dead? And then a few lines later, it's like, if she died, he would be in all kinds of trouble, you know? And it's just <laughs> so quickly can go from, like, a more compassionate thought to, like, a more selfish thought. Mm-hmm. And I can definitely relate to that as much as I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think she's captured a very human thing there that doesn't excuse anything, and that should be fought against but human nonetheless absolutely yeah but i i do find it really interesting for his character that yeah his his goal of just like winning this prize money and being able to go to university and then being able to like restore their family fortune and you know have some prestigious job that seems like it's quickly falling away where now he's just like i'm scared for my life i don't know who to trust such like more basic things that he as a capital citizen and as a snow never really thought that he would have to deal with so yeah it'll be interesting to see how that affects his character moving forward absolutely well why don't we talk about lucy gray yeah she starts out with quite an entrance (laughs) And I was like, well, I'm, I'm interested in her. I don't know how well I like her, but I definitely like her. I'm enjoying ways in which she's just smart and can know how to work a crowd, but also has depth and interesting cultural context. And the, there's so many different facets of her character that I think are really compelling. Mm-hmm. And I'm also really interested to see how a facade that she can put up to charm people into getting what she wants in certain ways, seeing that kind of crack and her, you know, it even mentioned at the first funeral, you know, she was still like trying to hold her head high and look somewhat dignified, even as this like corpse is swinging above her head, which it just symbolically is, is so potent. But then by the second funeral, all of that was gone. Yeah, yeah, good points. Um, I, I was also kind of not sure if I would if I would like Lucy Gray. I was worried for a bit that she would kind of fall into the manic pixie dream girl trope, which, uh, if listeners are unaware, is this kind of trope of female characters who are written basically as kind of these very unrealistic projections of this perfect quirky girl, which I think is is best exemplified in like Natalie Portman's character in Garden State. And so I was worried that she, you know, having this very, very unique kind of show-stopping entrance and this very kind of graceful presence, yeah, I just didn't want her to be that for Snow. 
but I really love, especially now at the end of this chapter, this kind of give and take of their relationship where she is asserting herself and she is giving, you know, she is very limited agency. And so there is this power imbalance there, but that's starting to change in really, really fascinating ways. And, and I'm hopeful to see more of her character now that they're moving past some of those power imbalances where we can see more of her own thoughts on what happened with her reaping and how she and the Covey exist within District 12. All of that is interesting, and I'm, I really, really can't wait to see more of that nuance come out. Absolutely. I completely agree. Well, what about Sejanus? Yeah, Sejanus is an interesting character. He definitely, I think, is, is kind of being put up as the character who is more likable or any likable in the capital. But <laughs> I also see him as a really interesting mirror to Snow. I, I thought a really interesting quote that Snow is like wondering, you know, what it be, would be like to be a tribute at one point. And he says, oh, but then he realized that's what Sejanus was doing and stopped immediately. And Right? I was like, no, look up to this dude as a better person than you are <laughs> and try to be like him. But... You know, talking about him being a mirror to snow, this different kind of intersection of privileges where he is economically privileged, but socially doesn't have the same privileges as snow. Mm -hmm. He's had to navigate things in very different ways. So yeah, I, I think that he's a character that is fascinating as, as someone who straddles so many lines in such different ways as snow and who seems to be really trying to, to do his best, but who is either not able to imagine or sacrifice enough to do anything of consequence or is just so trapped in this awful society that he, he's unable to, to, to do anymore. Yeah. As I've been reading, I have to like keep holding myself back from just being like, oh, I love Sejanus. Mm -hmm. Like he's the best because it's like <laughs> he still has privileges and like mm -hmm. he's uncomfortable with it and he's figuring that out. But he also hasn't tried to take anything down or it doesn't seem like tried to speak out against it until just recently and and i'm not it's hard to know what i would do in that situation because mm -hmm. it's like yeah you're still 18 so I, I appreciate the conflict that he feels and yeah the distress and sometimes hopelessness but also the defiance that he shows mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm interested to see where it goes. Do you think that he has anything to do with Marcus's disappearance? I think it's possible. And, and I mean, there's even a reading where maybe he had something to do with the bombing to begin with. And mm -hmm. Marcus knew how to flee because of it. But I, I, I honestly don't know. And I'm really trying not to think too much about what how the story might end because I know it's going to be tragic no matter what. So maybe I'm just trying to stop myself from early heartache. But uh, <laughs> all right. But it's it's I mean even looking at Lucy Gray, you know, best case scenario, what she wins and she becomes the first mentor who has to then raise other people to die. It's just, uh. I mean, and who's to even to say like even if she won that she wouldn't be killed in oh an accident exactly. or you know any other way that they would stage because she's too defiant so yeah 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 kind of in my head canon for Sejanus I imagine that he as a little kid after Marcus like helped him with his hand with the snow that he like sort of had a crush on him for a couple mm. years and then like 
moved away and then it's like oh no it's not only this person that was nice to me but I had a crush on this person and now they're gonna die in front of my face that's my head canon. I don't know that it would go there but I'm just saying it's powerful though I know right it would be so interesting and just add another level of of how horrible all these things are yeah can't just grow up with a crush in Pan Am. <laughs> no, it's never a good idea. <laughs> no, it's best if you like no one. Don't be attached to anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, on that grand note, we should probably wrap up. So next week, we will be discussing chapters 11, 12, and 13. And if you want to join us on Patreon for any of our discussions, we've had some really great discussions already on there. We'd love for you to join us for part two and beyond. Yeah, thank you so much to all of our patrons who have been engaging on that forum. Uh, I've really loved talking with you all. You know, you've made me think of even more really interesting mirrors and questions and, and other kinds of thoughts about the chapters as we've gone. Well, thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Pinterest. And of course, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo, including the special logo for this mini-season. You can find our designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.